Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Every human being has three basic psychological needs, and we're always looking for opportunities to feel supported in these need areas. They are autonomy, like feeling like you have some control and direction and meaningful choice, competence, so feeling like your actions have meaning, and then relatedness, feeling connected to other people or to something bigger than yourself. One of the things that's really important to supporting all three is feeling authentically seen. Hey. My name is Mallory, and I'm obsessed with helping leaders in the nonprofit space raise money and run their organizations differently. What the Fundraising is a space for real and raw conversations to both challenge and inspire you. Not too long ago, I was in your shoes, uncomfortable with fundraising and unsure of my place in this sector. It wasn't until I started to listen to other experts outside of the fundraising space that I was able to shift my mindset and ultimately shift the way I show up as a leader. This podcast is my way of blending professional and personal development so we as a collective inside the nonprofit sector can feel good about the work we are doing. Join me every week as I interview some of the brightest minds in the personal and professional development space to help you fundamentally change the way you lead and fundraise. I hope you enjoy this episode, so let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Amy Buker. Amy, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Let's start with you just sharing a little bit about your work and your background and what brings you to our conversation today. Sure. I am a behavioral scientist. So I have my PhD in organizational psychology from the University of Michigan. And when I graduated in 2006, I took what was at the time an unconventional route and went into industry and specifically into digital health. So my career has been in the healthcare space, the health tech space, and I really focused on building programs and you know digital tools that help people get healthier. So whether that's a short-term health goal, you know, getting back on track with something or a longer-term health journey, that's really what I've focused on. I'm currently at a company called Lirio. We are a startup that uses artificial intelligence and behavioral and science to get people to take action on their health. So really the culmination of everything I've worked on so far in my career. And I think one of the big reasons that I'm here is that my work focuses a lot on how we motivate people, how we create meaning, how we provide feedback loops that get people to take action, which of course, you know, in the fundraising world, you're really looking for people to see that personal connection with your organization, to take action around making donations, but, you know, most importantly, becoming recurring donors, like longtime supporters. Mm -hmm. And so the work I do has a lot of relevance to that kind of journey, even though I've focused it in a different space. Yes. Okay. And I want to talk a little bit about that donor piece as well, but I'm also really curious to talk about it for the fundraiser. So I, you know, I was a frontline fundraiser for many years and really hated it. 
I was, I felt so uncomfortable. I felt so disembodied. I felt so much chronic stress, honestly, between the pressure of fundraising expectations and then the vulnerability that fundraising creates, this desire to be building meaningful connection, but to truly be also dealing with a lot of like ghosting and rejection and sort of how do you stay open to that connection, trying to build those authentic relationships when you're also dealing with all of this sort of dysregulating experiences. And so, you know, one of the things I I also really love about your work is your focus on like social relationships and connections and the role that also plays in, you know, motivation and well-being and things like that. And so I'm curious, even just hearing me sort of lay that groundwork around the fundraiser, what are some things that come to mind in terms of how we as a sector can support them to be taking repetitive actions that help fuel their fundraising, um, even when in the moment they might feel scary or risky or things like that? It's, first of all, something I've experienced. Um, You know, I've had a few fundraising experiences myself. And then there's a real parallel in healthcare, too. We see physicians and other providers, I think, going through something similar. Maybe not the asking for something, um, you know, that people maybe aren't expecting the request, but certainly... They're so bogged down in documentation and following mm-hmm. rules and administration that you see a lot of physician burnout because they're not spending their days doing what they're passionate about, which is really talking to patients and caring for patients. And what you just mm-hmm. described sounds to me like a pretty similar phenomenon. I think a really important step is to, first of all, build that authentic relationship with the organization that you're fundraising for. When you really believe in something, when there's truth behind your request, it's much easier to ask the question. Um, I've noticed this in my own life when, you know, there's sometimes things that I might notice that I don't feel comfortable criticizing. But when I notice that someone else is affected by that, you know, a member of my team who reports to me or a family member, um, you know, I'm the oldest child. So even though they're adults, my siblings are always like the little ones. (laughs) And when I feel that I'm serving them by doing the hard thing by saying the hard thing, it's so much easier for me to do. And I think similarly in fundraising, you know, one of my big fundraising experiences, I ran the Boston Marathon in 2015 for the Dana-Farber Cancer Mm. Institute. So the Dana-Farber Marathon Challenge. And I really believe in their organization. So as hard as it was to ask people to donate, the fact that I could honestly, authentically say, this is an organization that's doing good work. Your money is going to matter. It's going to help people. Mm. It helped. But you also mentioned the social piece, and that's important too, because I think some of what is so hard about rejection is feeling isolated, feeling alone. Mm. There is a lot of research in psychology about how damaging ostracism is, like feeling on the outside. Mm. So there's a researcher, Kip Williams, I've talked about his work sometimes. This was back in the late 90s, so um, technology wasn't what it is now. He programmed this little video game where people would come into the lab and they would play this game, and it looks like there's three people throwing a ball to each other. It's very rudimentary design, Uh, but you're just playing this little game of catch. In reality, there's only one person playing and it's programmed so that after a few minutes, the other two characters cut that person out. They just start throwing to each other and ignoring the person. And what Dr. Williams found is that's incredibly damaging. And that's such a low stakes situation. You know, it's a video game. He actually started telling people that there weren't even other real people behind the scenes. And it didn't matter. Like their mood was still in the basement. They felt terrible. They had, um, you know, anger and sadness afterwards. It it tells me how sensitive we are to feeling different. And so I think having communities of people where you can share, you know, the things that went wrong, how did you cope with that? What was the horror story that you maybe experienced today? 
and relying on those other people to help normalize that for you. Um, you know, first of all, letting you know that you're not the only person who experiences that. And when you hear that message from somebody that you respect and like, it it's, means a lot. <laughs> like, oh, you went through this too, but you're great. Oh, maybe I'm also a little bit great. You know, those people can sometimes offer support tactics, uh, you know, having someone to go out and do something that's a little bit different, take a break away from the hard situation that can be really helpful. So I think that combination of having a community, but also really having an authentic belief into the cause that you're working for can help overcome that. And then the third piece is practice. Um, It gets easier. I don't know if it matters what career you're in. The more senior you get, the more time you spend in it, the more you have to have hard conversations, be rejected, um, be the bad guy sometimes is really difficult too. But it does get easier the more you the more you do it. You get a your own toolkit of how you can cope with it, how you can manage it as well as possible. Wow. Okay. That piece, the isolation piece is so huge because honestly, there is stigma around fundraising, even inside nonprofit organizations. And I think about, you know, when I say that a lot of times people are like, there's not stigma around fundraising. I'm like, really? Like how many times have you crossed the street from a canvasser or pretended to be on the phone? And then even inside organizations, there can be a lot of like, well, I'm not the fundraiser. And so I think people hearing that piece around how important it is to the inclusion of the fundraiser into the culture of the organization and that camaraderie and that normalizing of challenging situations. That is maybe one of the most important points that's ever been made on this show. Um, Because I think we talk about it, we talk about how how isolating fundraising is, but understanding the role that that plays in people's ability to, to do their work, to manage their work is so important. And I'm curious, like, you know, So my, one of my sort of like underlying thesis, theses of my work is that fundraiser behavior impacts donor behavior. And if fundraiser behavior is impacted by all of these things that are happening, like their isolation, and then we're asking them to go out and connect, we're telling them good fundraising is built through authentic relationship building and connection. And that how can they physically do that? take those actions when they're feeling low and secluded and isolated. And so I'm curious, like, how do you think about that intersection of when you're trying to get folks to take a behavior or to take an action from a challenging place? What are some strategies, tools, or things we should be thinking about to support them there? So this feels counterintuitive, I think, when you're in the situation, because a lot of times there's also a lot of pressure. You know, you want to perform, you maybe have goals or deadlines that make you feel like action needs to happen and soon. But one of the things I've learned is that taking care of your body is very important. Mm -hmm. So I worked for Johnson & Johnson for a long time, and one of the sister companies that I worked closely with is called the Human Performance Institute. They really focus on executives and helping them perform well. And their idea is you can't put more hours in the day, but you can direct your energy to the right places over the course of those hours. And a lot of their training really focuses on things like moving. So not sitting at your desk for eight hours, but making sure you're taking breaks to do both small movements and large movements, eating in a way that regulates your blood sugar so that you don't get hangry or lose your energy. Um, And those things do matter. And it can feel really like not the right thing in the moment sometimes when you're like, I'm so busy and I know I need to do this, but I also really need to do the five minute walk. 
So one of the things that we did that was shocking even to me, actually, as a behavioral scientist who was like behind the scenes planning this, we had people measure their energy levels over the course of a day and had them do various activities and see how that affected their energy levels. And even like a five minute walk can really boost your energy. And then that's something you can put back into those conversations that can you know, help make that challenge a little bit easier or help you be more resilient in the face of that challenge. So that's definitely something that I try to think of. I, I, I will say that's something I'm not as good at as I should be for everything that I know. Like I, I really know how hard it is to do. <laughs> and then the other piece of the Human Performance Institute training that I think goes back to what I was saying about that authentic connection to the organization is they have people focus on writing their story. And that's that's the framing they use, but writing the story that is the one that you want to be the story of your life. So when they do their on-site training, you would tell your story as it is today. And over the course of the few days of training, by the end of it, you have a rewritten story. And it's something you can keep orienting yourself back to. So this is really hard, but here's why I'm doing it. Here's what's on the other side of this challenge. And having that reminder, having it be something that you've crafted in your own words and sort of pressure tested with other people seems really powerful. And we consistently saw that people were able to perform better after they went through this exercise. And I I think it's that combination of getting your head in the right space, really getting oriented around what's important, but then taking care of your physical body, which has to carry you through all of those behaviors. Hi, it's Mallory. I'm so excited to be partnering with my friends at Instill to bring you these episodes all about how we truly enable fundraisers, which include everything from building effective habits to real relationships in order to raise more for your organization. There is so much wisdom in this series, but we know we can't cover everything here. That's why I'm launching a mini course on habit and behavior design for fundraisers specifically. And here's the best part. Instill is sponsoring this course for a year, which means it's 100% free to you. The mini course is launching live on January 25th. To sign up and come live or get the recording, go to MalloryErickson.com backslash habits to sign up. Okay. And there's something in those examples that I want to dig into if, if I'm hearing it correctly, which is that there's still this acknowledgement of the challenge. There isn't that, oh, this shouldn't be such a big deal or get over it, or there, there's this space created for recognizing and acknowledging and validating even that this is really hard or this thing. And then the motivation, can you talk about that, the company, why that's important part of it? Oh my gosh. Yes. I I could talk all day about this. So a big part of it, I mentioned I use motivation a lot in my work, and I draw from a theory of motivation called self-determination theory. Mm. So it's got um, these, one of the core ideas is that every human being has three basic psychological needs, and we're always looking for opportunities to feel supported in these need areas. They are autonomy, like feeling like you have some control and direction and meaningful choice, competence, so feeling like you have progress, you're you know, your actions have meaning and then relatedness, feeling connected to other people or to something bigger than yourself. So we've talked a little bit about relatedness, really not using that term already. But one of the things that's really important to supporting all three is feeling authentically seen. So if you feel like you're acknowledged, like your experience is recognized, it does help you feel like you have some meaningful control over your experience. The things you say are being heard. It can help with that competence piece, whether it's you're hearing back like, oh, you're doing better than you thought. Here are some indicators that you're actually performing or sometimes just mm. 
you're not performing, but let's talk about why and figure out how we can clear those challenges together. And of course, the core of relatedness, feeling like you belong, is having that authentic connection. So when someone doesn't blow you off, when you're able to actually sit in the fact that you're experiencing the challenge, it's feeding your motivation, like maybe counterintuitively because you're acknowledging that things maybe aren't so great, but it is making you feel like you're being seen as a whole human being in that experience. And it sounds like that that matters in the self-talk side too, right? That it's, there's that external validation or that we're being fully seen, but also that we're letting ourselves be seen like by ourselves. Totally. Totally. I am, I am not a clinical psychologist, not a clinician, like just always have to say that, but I've been very influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy approaches in my work. And I had the real luck to work with other clinical psychologists at some of my jobs who have trained me in some of these methods, not, not as a clinician, but more as how do you design them into a program or an intervention? Because a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy is when you have a disruptive thought, a negative thought, you interrogate it. You say, is this real? Like, Mm -hmm. is, is there really evidence that this is the case? And a lot of times there isn't. A lot of times it's us putting our, you know, our fears out there and interpreting things through a negative lens. But when we really take a step back, it's not as bad as we think. Mm. And that really does affect you. The way that you view the world affects how you interact with it. And it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you're operating from a place where you think things are really negative they become more negative because you're you're putting that energy out in the world. You're interacting with it that way. I think we've all had experiences where someone was in a really bad mood and you can either counter it with your own bad mood, or you can have a little bit of empathy and come back and try to be kind. And a lot of times that second approach is what will break through much more than the first. Mm. So I, I think about that cognitive behavioral therapy approach a lot. Um, and, you know, I had a manager when I was at Johnson and Johnson, who is a cognitive behavioral therapist And I distinctly remember in a one-on-one with him saying, oh, this person's so mad at me. And he said, what's your evidence for that? And it took me a second. I just, I had to laugh. I'm like, you're right. I'm just, I'm just imagining he's mad at me. Like, I don't feel good about something I did. And I'm concluding that he must be mad at me, but you're right. He's not said a word. Gosh, that's such good advice for fundraisers. Like after they send out that email to a donor to set up a meeting, it's so easy to go into, you know, they're mad at me or they're not going to give this year or they don't want to talk to me again. And so that question, that prompt, that is so, that is so good. I'm curious, like when we're in the, when we're in these states where we're feeling maybe particularly defeated, like I can imagine, you know, you do work in, in like the medical adherence field. And I can imagine that there are a lot of people who are experiencing health challenges that can feel really defeating. And you're trying to help them stay motivated to stick to a regimen, to make healthy choices in the midst of something that's really maybe even at times feeling hopeless. And then you're also asking them to make decisions that don't necessarily give them immediate relief but are intended to impact their long-term health. And you mentioned at the beginning around some of your experience fundraising and the way that you know you were thinking about how your work applies to, to fundraising and donor retention, I think is one of the words that you used. And there's so many fundraising behaviors that don't sort of quote unquote pay off right away. So they're in this state where they're, you know, dealing with this challenging experience. And then they know that the action they want to take 
somewhere in their mind, they're like, they know they it would be good for their future self to do that and for the future fundraising, but they're not going to get a quick feedback loop. How do you think about behavior design? I'm, I'm sure this is a big part of your work. How do you think about behavior design for, for those types of behaviors in those really challenging moments? Yeah. So as you're talking, self-efficacy is the phrase that comes forward. So it's mm-hmm. really about um, self-efficacy is a person's belief that they can accomplish something. So a little bit different than self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And the way that you build self-efficacy is by helping people notch small wins. So what specifically those small wins look like really depend on the situation. But in healthcare, like you mentioned, sometimes it's even, hey, you just enrolled in this medication adherence program. We are going to celebrate you. Like in digital design, I'm sure you've had the experience where you download a new app and you finish the onboarding, you sign up and it's like confetti. And (laughs) like they, they seem to go almost overboard celebrating you. But a lot of times that's designed on purpose to help you feel like you've accomplished something. If you've ever done, like say Fitbit, you know, and you get rewards for notching up steps over the course of a day, you get more of those rewards early on. And that's by design as well, because the more you can help a person feel a sense of success early, you're building that self-efficacy that then can then carry them through those longer periods of time where they're not having as many successes. And so, you know, in the fundraising world, I'm not sure what your analog would be in terms of notching some quick wins, but the more you can help people see how some of those foundational activities are actually accomplishments, like it's not yielding the ultimate outcome yet, which is going to be the donation or, uh, you know, the legacy planning from a lifelong donor, but it's a step towards that. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I think that's a place where organizations in general fall down a lot in managing employees is not always acknowledging the process um, successes, but only looking at the outcome successes. Mm. So that that's where I would go right away is how do you build self-efficacy? How do you help people feel that sense of small wins? Okay. What I love about what you just said is that, so I talk about this a fair amount for my work with Dr. BJ Fogg, and I try to help organizations look at the behavior that they want to track instead of just the outcomes, right? The like mm-hmm. leading indicators as opposed to the lagging indicators. And, but what I love about what you just said is that to build self, self, self-efficacy, let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. We can celebrate behaviors that are not the same but related to the same outcome, and they will still build up that self-efficacy for the future around different types of behaviors. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also thinking of behaviors as interrelated. So I also have a background in design. You know, I worked for a design firm for a number of years and we would put together journey maps that described, you know, it would typically be patient because I've done my work in healthcare. But you think about what it takes to manage your health over the course of, say, a year, and it's a lot of different behaviors. It's not just Mm -hmm. one thing, but they all work together towards the same outcome of you are healthier or, uh, you know, managing a condition that you've been diagnosed with. And I think similarly, when we look at something like fundraising, there are all kinds of different behaviors that are necessary to do, but together add up to that successful outcome. So it really is, you don't want to just focus on the target behavior in these complex interactions. It's what are all the different behaviors that come together? Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, what's interesting about when you were thinking about, I'm wondering what fundraiser behavior would sort of be those earlier celebrations that ultimately build that self-efficacy. That's a really interesting thing for us to think about is like, what are the webs of activities? I mean, certainly even doing something like 
logging into your contact management system daily and seeing lapsed donor reports or newest donors, like that, just logging into the system, celebrating that behavior will start to build a pattern of behavior that ultimately leads to, you know, spending maybe more time in the system and then running reports about blank and then making phone calls based on those reports. And there are ways to sort of like sequence those likely using this like celebratory and reinforcement method Am I following that correctly? That's perfect. Yeah. And I I was, you know, even small, um, more outbound actions, like maybe I'm going to send three notes today to people. um, And if it's somebody who is a recurring donor, maybe it's not even a request for a donation, but just sort of, you know, hey, wanted to check in, wanted to let you know about something great that we recently did. Uh, but that feeling of I'm I'm working on this relationship. I'm I'm putting a little bit of money into the goodwill bank for later. Mm. Okay. I want to ask you one other question. Is there ever a time where you would recommend no action? Let me try to explain this. But, you know, sometimes I think if we've just experienced rejection, like we just had been working on a grant for such a long time and we just got that no and we're really flustered by it, that like maybe it's not a great time to send three emails to anyone or not a not a time where we're going to feel connected in a donor meeting. We probably shouldn't pick up the phone. Maybe what we actually need to do is like rest or, you know, to your point, maybe it's swapping that activity with like, go take a walk. But I'm curious, like how, how do you help or think about when the instruction for folks isn't to just like check a task off a list, but like, okay, now's maybe not the time to do that thing. Right. So yes, absolutely. There's times where I'd say don't act. And I mean, one thing that I remind myself of a lot, um, because I myself am a type A person who has a hard time taking rest, but we need stress and recovery periods. And that's a physical thing, but it's also a mental thing. If you look at how people learn at how their performance improves, there's always this pattern of stress followed by recovery. And so if you've just been through something really difficult, like you've had a really tough rejection or, you know, hard meeting, that might be a very good time to step back and take that recovery period. You're not going to be particularly effective in the time right after that difficulty. And there's a lot of data out there in the behavioral sciences that says that. So Mm -hmm. I also, I manage a team of people who are like myself in terms of that type A-ness and that's something I remind them of all the time because they're also behavioral scientists. So like our, our language is like, hey, you know that paper? <laughs> Remember <laughs> that we, we're we scientists and that data says, so we should follow the data. Mm. It, it's hard. It is hard. It doesn't always feel like the thing that you should be doing. But you know what, what happens is if you take that time to recover, you can be more effective when you come back. And especially if your work is interpersonal, if you have to be talking to other people and you have to be in a headspace where you can be resilient in that conversation and responsive and warm, that's really hard to do if you're burned out. Mm -hmm. So the recovery, I think the damage of trying to move forward without the recovery could potentially be significant more so than the time lost by taking a little bit of time for yourself. Oh my gosh. Okay. That's incredible advice for us to end our conversation on today. Where should folks go to learn more about your work um, or if they're interested in connecting? Thank you so much for sharing your research, your wisdom. Um, You gave us so many important nuggets to walk away with. Well, thank you for having me. This was a really fun conversation for me. Um, You can find me, first of all, my company website, lirio.com. 
I also have a personal website that I do a poor job maintaining, but it's at amybukerphd.com. And I wrote a book a few years ago with Rosenfeld Media called Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change that is sort of a how-to guide for people um, without a psychology background to Mm. apply some of these learnings to their work. So that's available at Rosenfeld Media. Thank you. And we'll make sure there are links below to all of that as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I hope today's episode inspired or challenged you to think differently. For additional takeaways, tips, show notes, and more about our amazing guests and sponsors, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. And if you didn't know, hosting this podcast isn't the only thing I do. Every day I coach, guide, and help fundraisers and leaders just like you inside of my program, the Power Partners Formula Collective. Inside the program, I share my methods, tools, and experiences that have helped me fundraise millions of dollars and feel good about myself in the process. To learn more about how I can help you, visit MalloryErickson.com backslash powerpartners. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to encourage you to share it with a friend you know would benefit or leave a review. I'm so grateful for all of you and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. I can't wait to see you in the next episode. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.